Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, bringing another message today out of the book of Revelation. And again, I'm in chapter 20 of that book. And uh, I've done several messages already out of chapter 20, the book of Revelation. And uh, today's context is going to be Revelation chapter 20, verses 7, 8, and 9. And let me read that to you so you can have a, a point of context and a reference. And if you have a copy of, of God's Word there handy, I invite you to follow along uh, as I read this to you. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, the Word of God reads, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that uh, it speaks in past tense here, because this is something John sees in the future while in heaven. This has not happened yet. This is very similar to uh, another war that is going to be brewing, in fact, is already brewing, and that is the Battle of Armageddon, which I believe is a campaign. I think all through the tribulation period, we're marching closer and closer and closer to that time. In fact, even today, as I speak, uh, Israel is at war today. In fact, I know two different groups that have had to cancel their tours, their travels overseas, uh, well over 100 people uh, because of all the missiles and the, uh, the, the war that in, in, they're involved in right this very minute as, uh, as I speak. So I, once again, it's a reminder for us to pray for Israel, pray for their protection, uh, pray for the leaders to have wisdom, pray for our leaders to handle this correctly. Uh, and, and I don't have much faith in our leaders, but uh, I do have a lot of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that our hope today in this world is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth and the establishment of his great <clears throat> and glorious kingdom. Uh, as we know, God made a paradise originally. He called it Eden, and he will remake this paradise finally and call the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that is what we're looking at. We're looking at this kingdom that is coming. Last time I said, well, it was hard to a lot of people to associate with the word kingdom, so I said just consider it as a forerunner to heaven. And heaven is more in the vocabulary of our people, our listeners, than the word kingdom is. But I want to look at this kingdom again in another aspect of it, and I'm entitled this, uh, Will Satan Ever Be Destroyed? And of course, this gives us that, but there's a, another war that's going to take place at the end of the, king, the kingdom age, which will be the end of the thousand years. And again, the kingdom doesn't even start until after Christ has returned. He is coming back to set up his kingdom. Uh, but there's a time that's uh, got to happen first. And of course, we know that today we're waiting for the rapture of the church. And the timeline generally would be the rapture of the church, uh, which we're waiting probably. It, it could be any moment or any day. We just don't know when. But it will be soon. And then there will follow a period of seven years, another tribulation period. Then Christ returns and sets up his earthly kingdom, a physical kingdom on this earth, and it will last for 1,000 years. And so we've been talking about this. We've been looking at this. 
And, and, and remember, the sequence in Revelation, if you will, chapter 1, introduces us to the book, the vision. And we moved all the way through to chapter 19. We look at chapter 19 as he comes back to earth, destroys the armies of the world and all unbelievers. And then chapter 20, he sets up his kingdom. The, his kingdom is described in chapter 20. And of course, I, I mentioned last week, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation does not introduce us to a kingdom. It is really just restating the fact of a kingdom. Uh, and we can add all of the prophecies all throughout the word of God some 700 uh, and something that's one person counted, another counted 900. I don't even know how you count them, uh, but they counted that many. And you can hang those on the framework that is given to us in Revelation chapter 20. And so you see that really this is a, uh, it's like a sweeping prophetic panorama taking us from the present age, uh, the church age through the time of great judgment, the coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, and then on the uh, and then on into the eternal state, which is found in chapter uh, 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. So this period that we're talking about is a period of 1,000 years that is repeated over and over again in chapter 20. Unmistakably marked out kingdom length of time is 1,000 years. This is the thousand-year period in which Christ will reign over a restored earth and the universe. And we've been saying this, a marvelous kingdom is not just introduced here, it's continued here. And so we know that the earth is going to go through a mess during the tribulation period, and we've, we've seen that, and we'll continue to see that uh, as, we mar as we, in this current age, march through. But when the kingdom comes, God removes or re restores the earth to Eden-like conditions. And all of that we're going to be talking about today is going to be during those kinds of conditions. But we saw that, uh, first of all, we saw in Revelation chapter 20, it, the, the outline that I give you in Revelation chapter 20 is very simple, four parts. First part being Satan is removed. Second part is uh, we're, we're the first part, verses one through three. And the second part is verses four and five and six. And it's the saints reign. And then you have Satan is released, which is what we're talking about today. And then the next time we will be looking at Satan being destroyed totally. Uh, but the release leads to the destroy. So we're going to run those together. That's why I'm entitling this today, Will Satan Be Destroyed? And so I want you to look at this again, beginning in verse 7 through verse 9. And we see some things that I think are very pertinent for us to look at. This is the release. Look at what verse 7 says. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. We've already taken a look at this simply or simplistically by looking at is his prison. It is where he is and will be for the full length of time of the thousand years. But when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. And we know what happens. Satan comes out of his prison and horrible and frightening things occur as they always have when Satan had his way, its sway in society. And so, we, uh, we answered the question last week, and this is a very important question. If you're in the millennial kingdom, how is it that Satan's going to be able to come back and to have any influence at all? Isn't everybody a believer? And that was what we spent a lot of time on last week. Again, I still get questions on this. And just, just real quick, I want to tell you and remind you, there's two types of believers going into the kingdom. And they're not true types. You'll understand when I explain them. The first kind of believer will be 
us as believers today, those of us who are pre-kingdom, we are going to be, uh, unless we live through all all of the tribulation period and we usher it into the kingdom, we will probably die or go up in the rapture. Uh, well, uh, it depends it, you know, on what we're, what time frame we're looking at. But for us at this side of the, the kingdom, we're also on this side of the rapture. The rapture will happen and uh, we'll be taken out, but we will come back with Christ and we will reign with him for a thousand years, but we will have our glorified body. So one type of believer will have all glorified bodies all the saints reigning will have, they'll be resurrected and given their glorified bodies. But the second type of believer, and I just referenced it, is those that are living, that live through the tribulation period and make it into the kingdom. They will literally walk right into the kingdom. Well, you say, well, who will this be? Well, the 144,000 are going to walk right in. Those that were the witnesses found in Revelation chapter uh, 7 they're going to be able to walk right in. And then all of Israel that is saved that Paul talks about in Romans, they will be able to walk right in. Those that are protected during the great tribulation period that God protects, they walk right in. And then any Gentiles that are saved will walk into the kingdom. In other words, I'm giving you that so you'll understand that when the kingdom starts, there will be no unbelievers. All unbelievers will be killed. And so we look at this, it's, a, it's interesting to look at because only believers will enter. Of course, they're going to have physical bodies and they're going to have children. And the children, as we said last week, children of believers are still unbelievers. They, uh, two believers do not come together and make little baby believers. They're unbelievers because they are born with a sin nature and most of you already know that from scripture. We are born lost, and we are saved at a later time. So, Satan is going to be released to deal with these people and to tempt these people. Now, isn't it interesting that this period of time on during the kingdom is going to be a, a, a thousand years. People are going to live longer. It will not be uncommon for someone to live two, three, four, five hundred years, maybe six or seven hundred years uh, a old and during the kingdom, and they're going to be, uh, they're going to see a lot. They're going to see a lot, and hopefully I can cover some of this as we get through his. But it, the, even though there is going to be a comprehensive cultural morality, even though Christ rules with the rod of iron, and even though there is a massive evidence that he is in fact God in human flesh and the ruler of the world, and even though theology will not be disputed, but truth will reign, righteousness will prevail, peace will encircle the entire globe, and even though the truth will be everywhere, available to everybody, men will still love their sin, and guess what? People will still reject Christ, even while he is living presently on the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will even know where he is. And I say us, meaning spiritual body believers and those in physical body believers will know. And the lost will know. They're very much aware of what's going on in the earth. And so having rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a huge mass of unbelievers for Satan to influence upon his release uh, from the kingdom. And I, I should say to the kingdom of Christ for the place of darkness where he has been. So Satan will be released in that 
pit or that prison. We talked about the fact that man's depravity will not be altered by a, a perfect environment. You just can't alter a man's nature, a man's sin nature that he's born with because of outward conditions. So even though God puts Eden-like uh, conditions upon the earth, that's not going to make man act better. And that is a hard thing. But man's depravity will not be altered by morality. It doesn't change a man. And Satan will not have his personality or his character altered by being in the abyss either. His wickedness is fixed for eternity. He will just come out of a thousand years or nearly a thousand years of incarceration more probably irate more determined than ever to destroy the Lord and the people of the Lord. He doesn't change in his environment, and people in the kingdom age will not change because of the environment. They're going to have to come to Christ, receive Christ, trust Christ for their salvation. So here comes Satan, as bad as ever, and he goes after who? He goes after the sinners during the kingdom age who are as lost as ever, even though Christ is alive on earth. And so you have then the return of Satan in verse 7. That is how this section begins. Returning from his prison, it also says back in verse 3, that he's released for a short time. Now, sometime near the end of the thousand years, he will be released. It doesn't mean that uh, the thousand years have to be completely over, literally to the second of the day. But near the end, he will be released, and we will have some time uh, to do what he's and we'll have some time left to do what he needs to do. And I don't think it's going to take him long. I think the, the people that have rejected Christ have been around, and they're sick and tired of the righteousness and the right and the good on the earth. So this brings us to this, uh, this section. Uh, we go from the removal of Satan to the reign of the saints, now to the return of Satan and the revolt of Satan. So we don't know whether we'll get all of this into, into one, but we're going to try and see how far we can go. It reminds us, as I've been saying, nothing external can change a man. Judgment in the great tribulation, incredible, miraculous judgment falls all around people. Uh, in other words, the judgment itself during the tribulation doesn't bring people to Christ. I know I asked a question once in a Bible study uh, in Florida on a Thursday night. Uh, how much judgment do you think it would take for the rest of the world to repent? Because in Revelation, we find four different times it talks about that during the judgment, as bad as it is, that people do not repent of their sin and turn to Christ. They continue. If anything, they get worse. So with the book generally has 21 different judgments. What about if we had 41 or 42 judgments? What about if it doubled? What about if it tripled? Would the people still reject Christ? And the answer is yes. Judgment does not turn the hearts. It, it just reminds us nothing external can change a man's heart. Judgment in the great tribulation, God pouring out his fury and all that is happening doesn't change a man's heart. We've seen that. And so after the thousand years of a perfect environment and utopia, paradise restored, Satan comes out and he'll come out to deceive the nations. Will there be people left to deceive? Yes, I think there will be millions of people. He'll come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth for the war. And that we find that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, which is what we're looking at. 
Now, there you have the revolt of society, and it's at the end of this rapid-fire staccato presentation. The deception comes in verse 8. The war in verse 9, and then halfway through 9, the destruction. And then in verse 10 is Satan himself is dealt with and destroyed. I want you to look at this. First of all, in verse 8, Satan comes out to deceive the nations. Now, we're not surprised by that. This is what, the, what he always does. It fits back in chapter 12, verse 9. It calls Satan who deceives the whole world. I mean, this is the character of who he is. He is a deceiver. He's always been that. And so we're not surprised to find the Bible giving us this. In other words, it will not be clear to them what they're doing. They're just doing what is natural for them. That's what the people are going to be saying. There will be under a deception. They're going to think it's a very natural thing to follow the deception of Satan. His primary operation, Satan's operation, will be it has always been to lead people away from the truth or from the reality of truth. And you wonder, why don't you get it? Why don't the lost people get it and why don't they see it? The world is just absolutely filled with deception and lies. There's so much around us that I don't think we could even name it all. We can't, we can't focus on it all. It's just too much. But there's views here. Uh, false understandings, virtue everywhere. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded the minds of the people of this age who are perishing and they have, uh, have, they have bought into the deception because they love their sin. And so Satan comes out to deceive the nations. And I say all that to just simply say this. I think he's going to have a massive crowd. I think it's going to be millions of people that he's going to be able to deceive. And so while Satan is released and Satan is the deceiver, it is the plan of God that is actually being executed. He's not released just to run wild and take and do whatever he wants to do. He's executing God's perfect plan. Remember, it's God who is sovereign, not Satan. In fact, it's God who is sovereign, not God and Satan. It's God who is sovereign, not God and man. It's God alone. It is no different then when Jesus died on the cross and Peter reminded the people who killed Christ that they had done, that they had killed the prince of life, they wanted a murderer rather than the prince of life, but what they had done was by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, it says in Acts. And so God is behind this whole thing. God binds Satan for a thousand years and then God is in charge of releasing him at the end of the thousand years. So, it was God, of course, who gave the angel the authority to incarcerate him. And you say, well, why not just keep him incarcerated? Well, we, we can't ask that question because we don't know God's plan, but we know it is God's plan. God, of course, who provided the means of releasing him from the pit, it is God who allows him to pull off this deception. It is God who gathers uh, by allowing the enterprise of Satan to run its course, all of these hosts against his people and against his land and against his city. So Satan, you remember, always functions and can only function within the sovereign reign of God. He always functions within the stated purpose and goal of God in his redemptive intentions. Now, notice some things here that are hard to understand, and I want to just bring them up. It says, first of all, in verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sands of the sea, sand of the seashore. 
Now, obviously, it's not telling us the earth is round. And I, I get so tired of hearing people say that. There's even a movement today. Uh, the, the earth is flat, and they claim they can prove it. Uh, it doesn't take uh, us very long to realize that the, 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 the people never thought the earth was, was flat. It's, it's always been round. I don't even want to waste any time on that. But it's basically referring to the four points of the compass, uh, east, west, north, south, meaning global. I think the point here is not to get hung up on that, but the, the point here is to see that it is a global rounding up of the people. Look at how it says it. He will come out to destroy the nations which are global throughout all the earth is really the way you can read that. Is The four points. In fact, we saw this in Revelation chapter 7. The four angels standing at the four corners of the wind, uh, earth holding back the four winds of the earth. And there again is the same reference, meaning global, so you come to this, and there's no sense getting hung up in that little detail and let Satan uh, rob you of your blessing of, of what you can be getting from Revelation. But he's going to deceive the, the, the... It's going to be a global deception. I don't know how he pulls it off. I don't know how he dispatches his demons because the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know about what means he will bring about the deception, but the deception is going to basically, at its heart, be this kind of deception. Uh, and it's going to be what I think is the same kind of deception to muster up the battle of Armageddon we found in Revelation chapter 16, conquer Christ. That's at the heart of it. I mean, that would have to be, uh, would have to believe this or they wouldn't do it. And they're going after Christ. They're going after the saints and they're mustering up an army to let's go get them. Yeah, think about that. Think about living on the earth Knowing Christ is there reigning in Jerusalem and you want to get into an army that's going to go fight him? Oh, I can't even imagine. You see, they've lived a long time under the rule of Christ. They know who he is. They've seen the rod of iron. They've seen the, the quick uh, the way he rules with justice and righteousness and swiftness. And there's no escaping. They understand his power. Even the lost, I'm talking. They understand his invincibility. So the deception has to involve the idea that they can actually overthrow him. And they are so deceived by Satan. But that's all within God's plan. How blind can blind be? That's pretty blind. So back in verse 8, talks about another phrase. Uh, Gog and Magog. Uh, and then it says this about Gog and Magog, well, you have to ask before you can go anywhere with that, who, who is this? What is this? Well, one writer puts it this way. This has to be the title of these enemies of the kings of king, king of kings. In other words, Christ's enemies. He gives them this title. They're called Gog and Magog. This is what John sees. And this is going to be during a time which I don't think we can really know who this is. But we don't just take that name God, Magog out of the thin air because it has it does have a Bible reference. Magog was the grandson of Noah. Magog was the second son of Jephthah. You remember Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Jephthah's second son, grandson of Noah, therefore, was named Magog. And Magog, this child of Jephthah, found a great kingdom. And that great kingdom has became known through the years, thousands of years, uh, under a different names, but in this time, this age in which we're living, it's known as Russia. Now, will it still be Russia during the kingdom age? Well, Scripture says little about this kingdom at all, and we know 
about it just a little bit of the history of the name because he is the grandson of Noah. So we really don't know. And furthermore, there's no way to know who Gog is. We have nothing about Gog by way of descriptive verses in the Bible. Perhaps it's best to refer to Gog as the, the leader of Magog, perhaps. I know that uh, uh, Arnold Frutenbaum, if you've ever seen his book on this, it's called The Footsteps of the Messiah, uh, a great work on the uh, end times stuff. He says that, uh, that he, let's see, at this point, let's see, what does he say? Uh, he talks about Gog and Magog and saying it probably refers to uh, a nation and its leader, but yet we do not know uh, exactly what. And so he confers with this other writer, and the other writer was, by the way, I forgot to mention his name, it was John MacArthur. And so you look at this and you think, gosh, if they don't know, uh, then we don't know. But he does say that Gog and Magog points to the extent of the work of deception reaching from the extremities of the earth and hints at a similarity with the invasion described in Ezekiel 38, 1 through 39, and uh, 1 through, uh, 38, 1 through 39, 16, which will occur prior to the Great Tribulation. And we've looked at that as a coming war with Russia, and there are a lot of similarities there, but we just can't be certain because this is at the end of the kingdom age, which is it's not even here yet, and it's got to last for a thousand years. Years. So a lot is going to happen between now and then. But the work of deception will be massive and it will be a worldwide revolt. And it will begin to form, I think, uh, almost immediately. And finally, the millennial Israel will be invaded. Uh, it, it's so interesting that I'm looking at this invasion of Israel and Jerusalem, and they're being invaded now even as I speak. So Gog and Magog, then perhaps it's best to look is represent ancient enemies that just descend on the people of God. Satan gets all these people, gathers them together for the war, absolute final battle. <clears throat> and then another phrase, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, I don't know how much you read in, 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 in the, uh, your research and in your uh, study of these verses and the verses of the Bible, but people get hung up on such crazy things. Sands of the seashore, some say it's a literal uh, like counting the sand on the seashore. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's it just simply means uh, that this is a metaphor given to us. It's a tremendous great number, not necessarily equal mathematically to the number of grains of sand. I, how could you know that? Uh, it says in Joshua 11, 4, it's the same kind of information. We find it in 1 Samuel 13, a same kind of information. And so it's going to be a population explosion during the kingdom. We know that. People are going to live a long time. Conditions are going to be perfect. Uh, and I think it's, it does represent a time when there's going to be a, a millions of people are going to join in this revolt. You think, how could that even happen? How could they come and do that? Well, I think it's going to be uh, the, it's, it's a lostness of man's heart, inability to see the truth. And verse 9 talks about when the army is gathered. It's an amazing thing to see how he's able to gather them from the earth, but he does do it. And then it says uh, in verse 9, And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints. Now, the broad plain of the earth has to do with uh, none other than the land of Israel. We know that that is a reference to that. And so you can believe that the world of true believers is going to want to get in on this action. Think about this. 
If you were a believer during the kingdom age, not in a glorified body, but just physical body, and you know Jesus is living in Jerusalem, and you can go there, because remember now, the earth is going to be different. Travel is going to be easier. There's not going to be any mountain ranges or deserts. The world will be Eden-like. Wow, it's, there might be hills and things, but it indicates that the barriers will be removed, access being given, a feature of the kingdom. And so this is tremendous. It means that you, you, could, you could go there, but here's the question. Would you not want to go there? Absolutely, I think you would want to go there. You can believe that the world of true believers is going to want to get as close to Jerusalem as they can get. I would want to live not here in, in St. Louis, Missouri, where I am, or not in Winston-Salem, uh, where I go and see my son, or not in Florida, where I just came from. I would want to live in Jerusalem or get as close as I can because Jesus is there. I'll tell you one thing. If I were alive, I wouldn't be living anywhere in the United States. I would be living in Jerusalem. If you're thinking about future property investment, that might be a good place to look. But anyway, they go up against the people of God and they come to the camp of the saints. The word camp is used in the New Testament. And it's actually a military encampment. It's used to speak of Roman barracks. Uh, they want to be where he is. And that's, I think it's, I think it's just means that there is a lot of people there. And the scripture makes this clear that what the saints are going to do is uh, Isaiah tells us, uh, chapter 24 in, in uh, Jeremiah 3.17 in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9 says this, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And then it says also, and it, it, it keeps going, all the land will be changed into the plain from, uh, from the north to the south. It will be a flat plain. Jerusalem will rise and be on the site of where it is. And so this is actually talking about Jerusalem. And he is going to, Satan is going to launch that attack. The capital city of the millennial kingdom is the point of the attack where Christ reigns. Where the saints live, the battle is very brief. It's amazing, isn't it? Once again, I mean, look, you look at how quick Battle of Armageddon ends, and it doesn't really even, it doesn't even start. Man, Christ just intervenes and just wipes them out. So he's going to do the same thing here in Revelation chapter 20, verse, verse 9. He's going to destroy. Look at what it says. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Who's them? All of the unbelievers involved in the revolt. And I think all of the unbelievers are going to be involved in the revolt. I think it's going to take all of them. They were devoured. That means they were physically annihilated. It is a devastating and horrible judgment, and it's the last one. And then the final feature, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The, the, the devil, Satan, who led them, who deceived them, was now thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone uh, which we know is a sulfur-like chemical fire symbolizing torment, Satan joins his cronies. What an amazing thing. So will Satan ever be destroyed? Absolutely. Here it is. We just read it. Wow. You say, well, what about humans? When they get cast in the lake of fire, well, we're going to look at that at another time. But for now, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, prepared for him and his angels. It says in John 
12, 31. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, and here's uh, where that is fulfilled. This is the final hell for him. This is the final place. This is the last place. Every kind of imaginable torment will be there. Every conceivable way in which the creature can suffer, he will suffer. And, you know, I, I just, I look at this and I think, man, it is finally going to arrive. His day is coming. In fact, in Revelation 12, it says he's, he's cast to the earth knowing his time is short. And it is short. Man, when I look at prophecy today, I look at, man, you, you, I hope you can keep your eyes on prophecy. I had several several conversations this week with people saying, well, how do I get involved in, in paying attention? What do I begin to read? What do I do to keep up? Well, there's some good people out there. You can listen to Amir. He's got podcasts going. Uh, text me. I'll, I'll give you that information. Uh, you can read. If you don't know what else to do, just start reading the book of Revelation. We says in the very first chapter, you're going to be blessed by doing it. So get involved in the prophecy. Start looking for these things and pray. We know that, uh, like I, I said at the beginning of this, our hope for this world right now is in Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else. We can't look for a new president. We can't look for new leadership because I just don't think it's going to happen. I think we have to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and he's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Turn to him. Look to him. And if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, perhaps today is the day. Do it today while you still can. And again, this has been another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. This has been William Rogers bringing the message. I thank you for joining me today.